Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Stephanie sits down with Liz Wiseman, CEO of The Wiseman Group and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. As CEO of The Wiseman Group, Liz has had the opportunity to work with clients such as Apple, Facebook, Google, Salesforce, Tesla, and many more. She has been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. Prior to founding the Wiseman Group, Liz was an executive at Oracle, where she worked for 17 years as the VP of Oracle University and as the global leader for human resource development. On this episode, Stephanie and Liz discuss her background from her time at Oracle as a leader to executive coach today, her new book and the difference between multipliers and diminishers within organizations, as well as how to stay ahead in your career in today's fast-paced world. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Mission Daily. This is Stephanie Postles, and today we're joined by a great guest, Liz Weissman, CEO of the Weissman Group. Liz, how are you? I'm doing great, and I'm in your studio, which is amazing. Yeah, isn't it so nice? I'm feeling great. <laughs> and it's so awesome. You're right nearby, basically neighbors, so you can come back in the future, hopefully, again. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Weissman Group. Uh, how did that start? What is? What do you do? Give me a little background on that. Well, we are a leadership research and development firm. So we care about leadership and our our mission, since we're on the mission podcast, our mission is really kind of put down in simple terms is we are trying to rid the world of bad bosses. And we're trying to create workplaces where people want to go to work, where they love their boss, where they feel productive and utilized and contributing at their fullest. So we're really about developing the kind of leadership where people can contribute fully and where work is actually joyful. That's awesome. And you have some pretty big clients. I think I saw Apple. What are what are some of your clients that you're working with now or have worked with? Well, you know, we are right here in yeah. the heart of Silicon Valley. So it's no surprise that we work with a lot of the big tech companies, um, Salesforce, Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, you know, kind of at Tesla, we've done a lot of work there, but we also work for interesting companies like Disney and Target and Nike has been a long time That's client cool. of ours and and then companies all around the world. How do you see um, differences in companies that are in the Bay Area versus ones that are outside of it? Do they have different things they're struggling with? Is it or is it very similar wherever you go? Well, I think tech companies and companies in the Bay Area, you know, sometimes feel very different, but they're not as different they may be very different than where other companies are today, but they're not that different from where other companies are going to be tomorrow. They're in some ways, they're leading indicators of what's happening all over the world. Got it. Which is, I think, why Silicon Valley is so important to the world, but also why it's watched so closely. It's almost like you guys don't go crazy because yeah. we know whatever whatever you're doing is going to end up spreading around the world. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we watch very closely how we, the kind of cultures we build, the kind of leadership we develop here. Very cool. Are there any trends right now that you see happening that could maybe spread around the world over the next couple of years or big ones that you've seen maybe in the past that you're like, oh, I experienced this at you know multiple companies in Silicon Valley and then five years later, other clients around the world start experiencing the same type of problems? Well, I, I think the most profound contribution Silicon Valley has made to the workplace is really um, democratizing the workplace and really letting go of hierarchy and, and creating sort of an irreverence 
for leadership. Uh, you know, when I finished my first book, Multipliers, I sent the the manuscript off. We finished the book, and my publisher, who is at Harper Collins, and she sits in you know an office in Manhattan, she said to me, she said, Liz, this book could have only come out of Silicon Valley. I was baffled by this comment and I didn't know what she meant by it. And in some ways I was a little bit offended that maybe she thought it was parochial or only applied to Silicon Valley. And we found that it actually illuminates a type of leadership that has has really spread all around the world. But what she was saying, I didn't understand what she meant until I started working outside of Silicon Valley. And she Mm -hmm. said, there is a unique way that Silicon Valley sees the world and like this irreverence, this disregard for hierarchy, this fast cycle, this in some ways, because things are moving so fast here, managers become less able to do things themselves and more needful for the people around them to step up and mm-hmm. and take the lead themselves. Yeah. And I think it's part of the gift that Silicon Valley has given to the world. It's not just great technology, but the type of workplace that moves fast where people can contribute. Yeah, no, I've definitely seen that firsthand. I know when I was working in DC at Fannie Mae, it felt like only you know the highest up people could actually contribute and you could maybe help them um, if they asked for it. But for the most part, it, there's a lot of hierarchy and you couldn't really step in and just you know do what you wanted. And working at Google was very different where it's kind of like, everyone, you're in charge of this. I know I came in and they're like, you're in charge of a nine figure PNL. It's yours. Like, what reporting do you want to do, Steph? Do whatever you want. Pick your clients within Geo that you want to work with. It's up to you. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? It really is this up to you. And these barriers are gone. And these assumptions about how long you need to be in a chair before you can add value that you actually have to have a seat at the table before you add value. I know for me, I mean, you had that experience at Google. For me, it came in my experience at Oracle where I am probably... 18 months into my career. So I'm 18 months out of college and my boss comes to me and says, Liz, we're promoting you to manager and we're you're going to now run the training department for Oracle. And wow. we want a university. You know, Larry Ellison wanted a university, Oracle University. And they said, okay, now go build this. That's so wild I'm, at 24. Yeah, I'm like 24. I mean, maybe I had was looking at my 25th birthday coming up. But I remember not being afraid. I was just worried about these people who would do this. I'm like, <laughs> do are we in trouble as a company? Are there are there new adults available to do this job? Like, why me? Yeah. And are we really that desperate? Because you want me to go build a university, but I mean, my only qualification for this job is that I've recently been at a university. <laughs> and I guess maybe they thought I was still in learning mode. And I wasn't alone. There were so many people who were young and inexperienced, but given these oversized jobs mm-hmm. and you either failed or you grew really fast. Yep. And actually, it's a model that I think is being spread throughout the world, which is you don't need experience to be able to contribute. Yeah. In fact, sometimes we're at our best when we don't have experience. I love that. So I want to hear a little bit about your background of how you um, started the Wiseman Group. So maybe backing it up all the way to, you know, what got you here? Were there jobs in the early days that you had that you remember where you're like, ooh, that was a, a good one that maybe, no, I wanted to focus on leadership and lead and, you know, do everything you're doing today. How did, how did you get to where you are now? Well, I have spent my career really 
in in leadership and learning. And and it's been a symmetrical career in that I spent the first half of my career leading the training function. So I was put in charge of training and learning for Oracle and I was thrown into management at a young age. And so I was working in the domain of learning, but my role was to lead. And I really learned the hard way how to lead because I was young and I had to figure this out and really fast. I've now spent the second um, half of my career in doing the exact opposite. Instead of leading the training function, I'm training leaders. Mm -hmm. So the work I do today is teaching leaders around the world. And, you know, my, my basic work is research, write, teach, repeat. That's kind of how I, I see my role. And, you know, it's funny, I think I bring something to this role because of how I ended up starting my career. I wanted, um, like I think a lot of people, I came out of college passionate, yeah. sort of feeling a sense of mission, having a little bit of insight about the kind of work I wanted to do, maybe even feeling a bit of a calling, like this is the work I'm supposed to go do, mm-hmm. is I'm really supposed to like teach people how to lead and how yeah. to manage. And out of college, I went and applied for a job at what was at the time, the, like the preeminent management training company in the United States, maybe in the world. And I told them, you know, I'd come out of uh, graduate school, business school, and, and I said, I'd like to teach management. And Ed Musselwhite, who was the president of the company at the time, he's like verbally patted me on the head. And yeah. he's like, Liz, you seem great. You seem smart and capable. And he said, but if you want to teach leadership, maybe you should go learn to lead. Now, it had never occurred to me that 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 I needed to do that, but it was so disappointing to me and to be rejected to do this work I felt compelled to go do and passionate about. And then I went and spent a decade and a half leading. Yeah, And I think I am a far better executive coach today. I'm a far better educator. I'm a far better researcher because I understand the gnarly problems of leadership. Yep. Yeah, do you think, one thing I think about a lot anyways is, which maybe a lot of people could get offended by, is that if you don't actually go through and experience something, how can you teach it at um, colleges maybe when people have just gone through and became a professor, like that was their path of I'm going to college and I'm getting my doctorate now I'm going to teach people as well. It's always been hard for me to want to learn from someone like that who hasn't actually been in the field. Like they're my business professor, but they've never actually run a business or even worked for a business, like they kind of just had a career path to be a professor. What do you think about the disconnect between maybe people who are training right now who haven't actually been in the field to experience some of the stuff they're training? Mm, well, you know, th- there's a big difference between reading travel books and traveling. I think what you gain is not a sense of how to do it. You know, I, rarely am I teaching people, here's how I did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe if I were some celebrity CEO, I might be tempted to do that. But I think having done it, been beat up, I think what you learn is you learn empathy and you learn how painful it is when you get it wrong. And you learn that it's not only painful for the leaders, it's painful for the people they lead. It's painful for their families. It's like you see that and you really empathize with the challenge. And you don't necessarily have the answers because the answers are always changing. But I think having done it, you you know the questions to ask. 
and you know what to open and you don't settle for platitudes. In the space of leadership, there's every platitude about how we should lead. But, you know, I'm I'm skeptical of those. And yeah. so I dig and I look, you know, where are the answers really found? Mm-hmm. What are the active ingredients? What are the things that really do move the needle and make a difference rather than what makes for a good slideshow on yes yeah where someone said i've looked at seven different ceos and seems like this is a common theme that they all did so there's your best practice instead of maybe to me i'd rather read a biography of that person you know where it's the full story not just a high level so when you were at oracle or other jobs did you ever have anyone questioning your leadership because you were young did you ever experience any pushback from that and if so how did you handle that because i'm sure A lot of people, especially here, are in roles that maybe they feel like, am I prepared for this? A lot of my team might be older than me. Like, how do I get past these barriers? Any experience behind that? Oh, I have tons of experience (laughs) with this, with this kind of pushback. Now, none of it came from my colleagues at Oracle because most of them were in oversized job for their for capability. But um, I got pushback all the time. And there was a moment that I remember in particular, I'm maybe a year or two into this, my first management job, I have an enormous responsibility because I'm now running this multi-mega million dollar budget around the world, trying to figure this out. And I'm at a reception, it's an Oracle, like a cocktail party, and there's a bunch of clients there. Mm -hmm. And my vice president, so my boss, he introduced me to one of Oracle's clients and he said, this is Liz, she runs Oracle University. and the client was, you know, a, a businessman who was experienced yeah. and, you know, mature. He's got the gray hair. Yeah. He looks every bit the part. <laughs> and he does not even pretend not to be shocked by this because he does this like startled whoa. response. Like, whoa, like, oh my gosh, whoa. <laughs> like he was thinking like to, to ask me to take me to your boss. And, yeah. and, and he just was startled. And, and, Bob, my vice president, he saw this startled response and he thought it was funny. And and so he just is going to go in for the kill on this. He just goes, oh, yeah, Liz, she's not particularly qualified for her job. And then maybe he said something like, but she's smart and she's killing it, doing a great job. But but he said, yeah, she's she's like might be woefully underqualified. Uh, and so <laughs> so of course, I'm expecting executive air cover. Yeah. He goes in for the kill and he has just got the biggest smile on his face um, thinking this is so funny. And so I have to come back and defend myself because yeah. I don't get the executive air cover. And I just said the first thing that came to my mind, which was true. I said, hey, Bob, who wants a job they're qualified for? Yeah. Exactly. There'd be nothing to learn. And at this point, I have no idea what the client was saying, because now it's this little bit of this, um, not a standoff between me and Bob, but almost like a dare, because he looks at me, he's, you know, I'm saying, I don't want a job I'm qualified for. Where's the fun in that? Where's the learning in this? Give me something hard to do. And it was like he said, game on, because for the next decade more, I never had a job I was qualified for. Every job was a size or two too big. Everyone was an act of faith. Everyone required me to grow into that job. And and for some, you might think that would feel terrible, like yeah. never feeling legit, always feeling like people were looking at you like, wow, do you actually know what you're doing? But it was the most exhilarating experience. And when I left Oracle, a lot of people asked me why I left Oracle. I had a great job there, I had this executive role. I knew what I was doing and I left not because I didn't like Oracle. I left because I felt like I finally knew what I was doing and it was 
disheartening in some ways, like the thrill was gone. And so I left in search of something I didn't know how to do, which is what led me to management research because I wasn't looking for something I entirely didn't know how to do. It wasn't like, okay, gee, yeah. let, me, let me try my hand at you know neurosurgery. It was, what's something I know a little bit about, but there's a lot left to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I pivoted into to management research. And, but it really is my, my wish for everyone that they have a career full of jobs that they're a little bit or maybe a lot underqualified for. How do you choose that though? Because I'm even thinking from personal history, it feels hard when you know, you're on top of your game and everyone looks to you because they're like, yeah, yes, Stephanie knows how to do this. Go ask her. Like that really makes you feel good. How do you convince people to choose to get into something that maybe they don't know how to do? They're going to be kind of the rookie for a little bit, kind of starting over maybe in a way. And how do you convince people like it's the right thing to do, to choose something harder that you don't know what you're doing and to always choose something that's maybe feels bigger than what you can do? Well, I I think it comes down to joy. I mentioned that earlier because actually being in a job that you don't totally know how to do is a little bit miserable. Yeah. I I mean, I'd have to admit it. You know, it's hard. It's hard work. There's some self-doubt that goes into that. But um, when we look at this data, we we did this survey of about a thousand professionals and we asked them a number of questions. And two of the questions that we asked, we correlated the responses to these. The question was, what's the degree of challenge in your work? And the second, uh, the question we correlated with that was, how satisfied are you with your job? And what we found was this near perfect linear correlation between the two, meaning as challenge level goes up, so does job satisfaction. I actually believe that when we're good at our jobs, it might feel good. You might get the compliments, being sort of the go-to guy, you know, a lot of, a lot of accolades, but I think we begin to secretly resent our jobs. Yeah. And like a little part of us starts to die inside. Um, But actually we are at our happiest when we have a job that's like a size too big. Now, I don't recommend people run out and get jobs that are two sizes or three sizes too big because those do, you'll sort of get tangled up Mm -hmm. in those jobs. But it's like getting that fit right. I I like to think of it as... um, the way you would shop for shoes for toddlers. Always go a little bit bigger. <laughs> Always a little bit bigger. And, um, and you know, and when it feels a little uncomfortable, like, mommy, these shoes don't fit, you just say, you know what, suck it up, princess. <laughs> you know, you, you're going to grow into these. And I feel like I was blessed with this career where I had leaders, and this came at Oracle, where I had leaders who saw capability in me, gave me hard things to do. And then this is where the great leadership came in there was a little bit of an underlying message of suck it up princess. Like, I don't know if anyone would ever accuse me of being a princess, but they never stepped in and did the job for me. Mm -hmm. They never said, oh, you're going to need a lot of help. Like they would just size it in such a way that they would be comfortable letting me struggle through until I figured it out. Yeah. Which I think could be kind of hard for a manager to do that. I know even we struggle with that, you know, letting our employees kind of have a little bit more free reign because- you know, for a while, it was just a couple of us. And we were in this mindset where we did everything and watched very carefully over everything, made all the decisions. And right now with, I think we have 15 or 16 employees, trying to give them a little bit more free range to do what they want feels hard mm. because you've just been so used to being, you know, the one who makes every decision and listens to every, you know, episode that goes out and just does all the, you know, work and editing, not editing, but like listening to it and all that. Do you talk to startups around 
scaling and how to think about like growing a team that maybe in a year goes from zero to 15, 20, whatever it may be. And this is a personal question, so might as well ask for myself. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I think the startup is, is so interesting because you can start a company with genius, with someone with an idea and capability and and you need that. And you've got to kind of, anyone who's done a startup knows you are pushing a boulder up a hill yep. and, and you have to effort it. And it requires kind of what I call genius, the capability of the founder, the leader. But to build a great and enduring company, you can't do that with just lone genius. You really need leaders who are, who are genius makers. And there's uh, so many shifts that you have to make. Like you have to shift out of the mode of giving all the answers. And you've got to learn to apply your leadership into asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. You've got to shift from taking responsibility and being all in as entrepreneurs often are and founders. And then you've got to shift that to how do you transfer ownership to others? How do you get other people to take ownership hmm. rather than do it yourself? You know, you have to shift from being a decision maker to being a debate maker, getting people to weigh in on the right issues. Um, and, and you've got to really make that shift from hiring smart people to knowing how to utilize people's natural genius, getting the right people on the right thing. But each of them involves a shift and it is hard yeah. if you're a founder. I am also yes. a founder. I have a lot of empathy for people who start with this big vision and heroics. And they have to like figure out what is a more sustainable form of leadership. Yep, yeah, no, completely agree. So what have you experienced founding your company? You also work with your husband, right? I do. Tell me, I mean, you know, I work with Chad. I would love to hear about how that goes working with your husband and um, what you've done to make it work. Do you separate roles completely to where you have your own area of expertise? How do you think about if you do hire people? How do you agree on things? Like, what is that dynamic like? You know, I'll tell you the thing I've learned working from Pat's. Well, first of all, if you really want to know how that is, you should definitely talk to him, not me. <laughs> Why well, talk to him? <laughs> well, I think he would have an interesting perspective. Here's the thing I have learned, and and there's so much research on this that the best partnerships tend to be complementary mm -hmm. as opposed to deeply collaborative, where each person is bringing something different. Now, my true confession is I've read all the research on diversity and inclusion, and know that having a diverse team and diverse perspectives and sort of mental capabilities adds value, brings innovation. But, you know, truth be told, I would much rather work with people who are exactly like me. Yeah, it'd be easier. It would be easier. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people who admit that and maybe don't admit that on yeah. air, but I'll go ahead and own that. I love to work with people who think like me, who yeah. have similar skills, like ideas flow and it's fun and we're high-fiving. But while that is by far my preference, what I have learned in, in founding this research firm is that it really takes complementary skills and people who do things very differently. My husband and I are hugely different on that Myers-Briggs. Mm -hmm. I am E-N-T-J. He is I-S-F-P. Like we did a team exercise. We mapped him out. We are on the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. And what we do is we just work on very different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And he runs the business. I lead the research, the teaching. 
And I've learned to pull myself, and this is probably the the biggest thing I've learned as a founder and a CEO. I mean, I know what I'm supposed to do as a good leader. I mean, if anyone knows, it should be me. It's what I do is I research um, what great leadership looks like and I teach that. But I know that I'd want to have my hands in everything. So I have just learned to just not dabble in other people's work, but to give people extreme ownership over things. Like we have a wonderfully profitable, growing practice. And part of the secret to that is I stay out of everything that involves a dollar sign. So I don't get involved in um, what we charge, what we pay people, like that all goes entirely to my husband and to the head of our leadership practice. Um, And so I just have learned to just give other people space and give it to them wholly, mm-hmm. almost like not only do you get 51% of the vote on this, you get 100% of the vote. Yep. And I've learned how to be smaller in those spaces so that other people can be big. Yeah, I love that. No, anytime I've ever seen any founder conflict or you know disagreements that were harder to resolve is when people are stepping in other people's territory that maybe, like you said, they should just let them make the decision. If you think it might fail, just see, like let them go for it and they can learn from it. But yeah, if that's their space and everyone has agreed from the beginning, that's their space, just kind of back off. And I think one of the things I've learned is that when you think about the fundamental roles of executives and leaders, I think one of the most important roles is, I mean, I talk a lot about like the fundamental job of leadership is to ask the right questions. Let your team find the answers to that. Another really, really essential job of a leader is to size challenges right. To know how to size a challenge to an entire enterprise so that it's hard enough that people have to leave status quo, but just doable enough that that you can score wins, that you hit those milestones and so that you build that momentum and that excitement for challenge and transformation. And most executives tend to go too big with big aspirations, that things lofty that people might, their hearts might attach to, but they can't get their head around. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you get the micromanaging leaders who, who are stuck in status quo. But I think one of the fundamental jobs you have to get right as a leader is know how to size the challenge. both the challenge you give to a team or an organization and to size it for the individuals. So I like to think of it as um, kind of picking the right size wave. And it actually came from one of my experiences as a mother where I have four children. And this was back when I just had three children and we're, we're in Hawaii. It's a day on the beach and like our kids are playing in the surf and I've got a little three-year-old and that little three-year-old is kept wandering out. He wants to play in the big waves with Terrifying. the other people. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like pulling him back and talking to him about the power of the ocean. And you know what? Those waves are really big and those they can like sweep you out to sea, pull you under. So why don't you play here in the baby waves? And this is my son, Christian, who was like born without a sense of fear yeah. and born with like a deep love of the ocean. We talk about this. I turn my head and he's back out in these waves. And this is happening to the point where other people on the beach think this is really, really funny. And I finally realized, you know what? This kid is not going to learn this from his mom. He's going to have to learn this from mother nature. And so I'm looking for the right wave. He's This kid's a surfer today. So I'm not looking for like the perfect wave the way a surfer would look. I'm looking for what's a wave that is big enough that it's going to take him down and teach him something, 
but small enough that it's not like going to kill him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, you won't die, but you'll learn. Yeah, you're not going to die, but you're going to learn. Yeah. And so I'm looking for this wave and I see it. And when I see it, I start backing away. Even to the point where people on the beach were looking at me, like they're shooting that bad mom look at yep. me. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, no, I got this. I got this. Like maybe not like a lifeguard kind of got it, but more like a teacher. And I let that wave take him, my little three-year-old, and it's tumbling him. And I'm nearby, you know, I'm within a couple feet of him, but I'm not holding on to him. And when he, you know, like comes up, he's like, he's spitting out some sand yep. and he looks at me like, wow, where were you? <laughs> and and then I talked to him about the power of the ocean. And then he understood. And I think it's it's very similar to what leaders need to do is we need to get comfortable letting people be uncomfortable but we have to size the wave, right? We can't let people fail at something that is career ending or business ending or reputation killing. Like we have to let them fail at something that they can recover from, but it has to be enough space that they've learned and that the failure is theirs, not yours. Yeah. And learning to size the waves right in business, I think is a core leadership job. Yeah. No, I love that example. I'm even thinking how we're kind of going through that now with Grayson, our 18-month-old son, and kind of letting him, knowing that he could maybe fall or, you know, touch the oven after we told him it's hot a million times, not the burner, but like the outside part of the oven. And in a way being like, well, he's only going to learn if, you know, he does that himself and it's not going to hurt him immensely. But, and then afterwards reminding him, hey, we told you not to, you know, climb on that or touch that or whatever. But I think that's such a good lesson for employees and like building a team or anyone is that, yes, don't let someone hurt themselves to a point where they can't recover, but maybe being able to learn through that and watching and knowing it's going to feel uncomfortable for both sides. Yourself watching, you're like, oh, I could do that better. Oh, I could save him or her from, you know, a hurtful experience. But knowing that in the long term, it's actually going to help them out a lot. You know, and we we can learn from the experiences of others. You know, reading biographies, yeah. listening to podcasts. There is some learning that comes there, but the most potent learning comes from our own experience. Mm-hmm. But it's that facilitated, that mentored experience, meaning someone's letting you go out and learn something on your own. And then they're there when you take a tumble and they might pull you up from the wave, let you spit the sand out, so to speak, and they'd be there to talk it through with you. Like that is the power for learning. And, you know, we're now living in a world where things are changing so fast that whether you're like me or not and want to be in a job you're underqualified for is a little bit irrelevant because the truth is we're all underqualified for our jobs. I I did some calculations for some research I was doing. And if you work in STEM, or any field that's heavily infused by technology, when you calculate like how much information is coming at us and the growth of information Mm -hmm. coming at us and information decay, meaning that things don't stay true forever, things are changing constantly. When you put those two um, pieces of data together, about 15% of what we know today is likely to be relevant in five years. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't 50, that was 15. Yep. And I just saw another statistic, um, I think it's Amy Wilkinson, who's um, on faculty at Stanford, said that by the time their undergraduates graduate from Stanford, about 50% of what they learned there will be irrelevant. That's crazy. So we, as contributors, have to get really good at mastering this, this rookie space. And we have to get really good at operating 
as an intelligent learner, not yeah. like a clueless bumbling, gee, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? Yeah. But a highly intelligent, capable learner. And as leaders, we have to master leading people through this space, mm-hmm. leading people into the unknown where you don't have an answer and helping people experiment and discover and getting those learning cycles turning really fast. Yeah, no, that's such a good reminder because I'm sure a lot of people feel like, and I think I read a report on how like uh, an older generation feels like if they lost their job during the financial crisis, it was really hard for them to think that they could get back into it because they didn't feel like they knew the tech. And it would have been a good reminder for people feeling that way that that's everyone at this point now, young, older, like anyone should feel that way because the world's moving really quickly and that's okay. You have to kind of embrace that yeah, fast pace of change. And that's normal now, where maybe it wasn't, you know, even 20 years ago. Stephanie, I think you make a really important call out because we often think that it's the more experienced workers that are vulnerable to irrelevance and, um, you know, decay, so to speak. And, and it's happening to the inexperienced people just as fast. Anyone, if you let it, it'll happen to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, I'm now a mom of teenagers. And of course, you know, the teenager's favorite pastime is telling their parents that they're out of it and they don't, you know, uncool, unhip, unlearned. It's like the whole thing. And it's fun to say like, yeah, but you know what? You're becoming as as is irrelevant. (laughs) Would you finish that sentence for me? As I am, like it's happening to you at exactly the same pace. Yeah, that, that's wild and such a good reminder. So when thinking about, you know, that always having that like learning mindset and being ready to change, uh, I think in one of your research papers, you highlighted that inexperienced workers actually outperform veterans a lot of time because they look at problems in a whole new way where a veteran might look at a problem and say, oh, I've done this before. Like, this is the answer. And they don't think outside the box. Can you maybe go into a little more detail around, like, when do you think about hiring an ex- inexperienced person versus a veteran? Like, how do you know what's best depending on the situation? Mm-hmm. And what have you seen from hiring maybe younger people who just have that beginner's mindset? Yeah, well, let me just capture the research and then we'll talk about yeah. the implications of that. The research I did was studying how do people with experience approach a piece of work and how do people who are inexperienced at that, you know, smart and capable, but yeah. new to that. And and we tend to approach work in very, very different ways. You know, with experience comes wisdom, insight, intuition, networks, and also it comes uh, with it comes pattern recognition, which means that we quickly ascertain a problem and we apply a solution and we often apply a default solution to it. So we tend to be faster and more efficient um, when we're experienced, but when we're new, we don't have those defaults. Mm -hmm. We can't see those patterns. And we find that we do a number of things far better when we're new to something. We ask more questions. We ask better questions. We don't have the network. So we have to go out and build that network. Yeah. We we don't we lack expertise, so we go seeking expertise. And we find that we actually, when we get into this mode of kind of intelligent learner, I sometimes call it the rookie smart mode, is we actually bring more expertise to bear on a problem. We're not the originator of that expertise. We're the yeah. gatherer of it. And in the process of humble inquiry, we tend to actually bring more innovative solutions and we tend to solve problems strangely faster. Hmm. And it's not faster because we know how to do it. It's faster because we don't know how and we feel conspicuous. We feel vulnerable. We feel like all eyes are on us 
And we've got to deliver quickly because, yeah. you know, we don't have a track record. We don't have any points on the scoreboard. Um, and so that's, it's not that we're always better when we're new, of course. Yeah. It, it tends to be when we're new to something hard, noticeably hard and noticeably important. Hmm. One of my, my favorite parts of this research is we find that the most powerful rookie experiences come not from young, new to the workforce rookie experiences, but executives who've got years of experience who are taken out of one domain. Uh, like, let's say they've led the marketing organization yeah. and they're like, you know what? We're now going to put you on a product management team. And it's unsettling to them. They can't rely on their own capability. It causes them to go into learning mode. It puts their whole team into learning mode and they end up drawing on the wisdom of the people who work yeah. for them. It puts them in what I call multiplier mode. Yeah, I would love to dive into the um, multiplier versus diminisher now that you just mentioned that. Do you wanna kind of talk about that a bit? Well, the, the idea of leader as multiplier came out of my Oracle experience. So Oracle was this amazing place to work and they were known for hiring this trifecta of talent. Mm -hmm. So they looked for this kind of like perfect triangle between really, really smart, achievement oriented, like a freaky kind of achievement yeah. oriented, like type A plus, plus, plus. And then people who were nice and Having worked there for what seventeen years, I can um, say if they if they compromised on one of those three, it was sometimes on the nice mm -hmm. part of it. Oh. <laughs> but everyone was so smart, and we talked about this. I got thrown into management really young, which meant I was in learning mode and watching mode, and I started watching two things. One, I was so fascinated by all these really really smart people around me, and two. I was trying to figure out how do I do this whole leadership thing? Cause I'm now the boss and I feel like a kid. And so I'm watching all of these leaders and here's what I noticed. I noticed that not all smart people generate smart around them, that there are really smart people. Like we've all had this experience where you've seen a really intelligent person walk into a room and completely dumb down the room. Like it's almost like you see the collective IQ just dropping in the room because Either they're so smart they that they need to be the smartest in the room, or perhaps they're just so smart and capable that other people defer to them. Other people stop talking and let them do the talking. Other people ask them to find answers. And, and I noticed these leaders who were smart themselves, but they shut down intelligence in others. And I later, came, you know, I went out to study this uh, later, but I end up calling these leaders diminishers mm -hmm. because of this diminishing effect they have on people around them. And I found in the research that these diminishing leaders get less than half of people's available intelligence, their their knowledge, their technical skills, their business insights, their creativity, which I think is just, it feels like a crime. Yeah. To me, it almost feels like a corporate crime. Like, wait a minute. So companies are, and you know, Stephanie, we're right here in the middle yeah. of Silicon Valley. And, and we know that these companies are obsessing over getting the best and the brightest. Yep. And I watched Oracle gather the best and the brightest, but then I watched certain leaders cause those people to become a fraction of their real capability. Yep. And, you know, it doesn't take a, a lot of research to know what happens in that dynamic, when people come into work with a lot of capability, wanting to contribute, and you've got leaders who either don't want it or they just don't see it. 
Those were the diminishers. And then I noticed a very different kind of leader who was equally smart and capable, but their effect on people was very different. They don't use their intelligence as as a weapon. They use it as a tool. And the way they play their own capability really affects how other people play theirs. And when they walk in a room, like people are sitting up, like yep. they're like light up. They yeah. people light up around these yeah. leaders, and it's not like their hearts light up; their minds light up, and people are at their sharpest around them. They're offering deep insights, their real capability. They're offering bold ideas. Mm-hmm. People are willing to experiment, uh, take risks, fail, learn around these kinds of leaders. And I I came to call them multipliers. And if you know these leaders get virtually all of people's capability, whereas the diminishers get half, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, we have a problem here because there's a lot of people who end up aware or unawares down this diminishing path. Yeah. How do you identify who's being, like, you can definitely tell the multipliers pretty easily, but how do you identify a diminisher and think about kind of changing them or making it apparent to them? Because I can already think of a bunch of people from like Google and Fannie Mae where you'd walk into a room. I remember this one guy, I'd walk into a room and he was very, very, very smart, but everyone would never speak up. And I'd be the only person to speak up knowing that I could get criticized pretty intensely in front of a whole group of people. I didn't really care, but like everyone just kind of stayed quiet and just always said, hey, what, what do you think? Always asking the guy, what do, you, what do you think about this? And so timid. And I mean, these were some of the best engineers in the room who were afraid to speak about the product that they were working on that this guy really didn't know anything about, but he was just viewed as the leader. And um, so how do you identify that in an organization and figure out, is this someone that we can turn around or is this someone is that that's just them? And like, you might just want to like fire them. So what do you think? I mean, I think it feels hard, first of all, because I think a lot of times the people that hire these people aren't in the room a lot of times with their teams in these like team meetings and stuff. So I'm thinking whoever hired this guy that I'm thinking of, I know his boss was never in the room with him. Very, very rarely. They don't see them in their natural habitat. Yep. Yeah. So like, what do you do if maybe it's, you know, employees who are in the room with that and maybe leadership might not see kind of like how things are happening? Like how would an organization even go about identifying that? Well, my experience is that it is very easy for people to spot the diminishers around them. Mm-hmm. People do it just in in a minute. Like they can figure out, oh yeah, these are the people who were diminishers. It's harder for higher ups in organizations to spot them because diminishers tend to be uh, really good at managing up. Yeah. And what they project upward in the organization is confidence. Yep and control. And, you know, if you are a founder, CEO of a high growth company, it feels like a nice warm blanket to have these people around you because they're saying like, hey boss. Got it. I got this. I got this. We're going to deliver the numbers. The product is going to work. And they don't see that that person is um, doing it through brute force or heroics and they don't see the true cost. And if you're in a high growth company, you don't see the waste of your talent mm-hmm. investment. I think the real question is not how do we spot them out in the environment, is how do we spot it in ourselves? Here's what was so shocking to me in the research is, so I could see these diminishers, I could see them at Oracle, yeah. multiplier, diminisher, I did it in my research, but what 
I really started to see as I looked into this is that most of the diminishing that's happening is not coming from the tyrannical, narcissistic, know-it-all bully kind of boss. Yeah. Like they're interesting and we see these people and often their leadership and their behavior makes headline news. But most of the, in some ways, these, these people are easy to deal with because you can spot them so quickly. Most of the diminishing is coming from what I call the accidental diminisher. It was shocking to me as I was doing this research, which started right here in the Valley, and I was interviewing people. I wasn't determining who were the diminishers and multipliers. I asked people, tell me about two bosses. And people would tell me about their diminishers. And as I went through interview to interview, a lot of these diminishers, these names were people I knew who might stop me in a restaurant. Hey, Liz, how you doing? What you're working on? I tell them what I'm working on. Oh, working on a book about multipliers. They're like, wow, that's so interesting. This concept of multipliers. I love it because I am such a- Diminisher? Multiplier. No, I was like, is anyone admitting it? <laughs> no, see, so okay. many people- like, so They think they're multipliers, but they don't realize how they're actually- They don't perceived. realize it. Now, okay. the, the hardened diminishers tend to, to see it and they mm-hmm. know it. But most of the diminishing is coming from people who would say, like a lot of people say, man, I got the heart and soul of a multiplier, but you know, I've been living in diminishing land yeah. long enough that I've acquired a few of these practices. I've gone native. And so- most of the diminishing is coming from really well-intended leaders who had would have no idea that people around them are holding back. Yeah. That people are letting them do things. And and so there's a number of ways we we tend to do it. Let me let me share a few of my maybe I'll share. Yeah, I would love that. I was just going to ask how do you identify that in yourself if you're someone who thinks you're a multiplier? Well, let me let me let me talk about my diminishing okay. ways. And because I've got I've got a number of these accidental diminisher tendencies. I think everyone has them. And here are the ways that I tend to diminish with the best of intentions. I love a creative environment and I'm an idea person. Like ideas just flow for me. Like I have to damn off ideas. So I'm the kind who comes into the office like, hey, what about this? And have you thought about this and considered this? Or I was out on a run and I was thinking that maybe we should try this. And it's not that I think my ideas are better. I just, I'm getting the party started. Silicon Valley is full of the idea guy kind of leader. But what actually happens around a leader who's a fountain of ideas? Like what do other people end up doing? Not having an idea themselves or not wanting to share it. They probably have the ideas, but I think they might be intimidated. Yeah. Like I I once had someone say, Liz, you're, you're intimidating. Yeah. Like me. Like I'm the least intimidating person there is. Like me intimidating. And they're like, because you just, like you always have answers, ideas. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, people tend to hold back or wait or they spend their days chasing ideas. Oh, okay, well, now she's got me doing this. Well, now we've got. And so instead of coming up with their own, they're making like a millimeter of progress in a million directions. Mm -hmm. And eventually people learn to hold back. Yeah. Like we get idea lazy around people who are really idea rich. Let me give you another one of mine. Yeah. Um, I'm an optimist. Like, you know, we talk about a growth mindset. Like I have way too much of this growth mindset. I think everything, see, I, I look at things that are hard. I understand they're hard, but hard for me translates to fun. Hard equals fun. Therefore we should do it. And I think we're at our best when we're doing things that are hard. So therefore we're going to be successful. So I am like a hopeful can-do leader. Like we got this, we can do this. Like I see victory. 
but what do I overlook? Everyone probably being like, uh, this feels scary. And how do we get there? And <laughs> right. And sometimes yeah. people don't want to sign up because like, well, wait a minute, if we're going to, if this is supposed to end in victory, what if, yeah, what if, if I, I fail? fall down? What if yeah. I fail? Or I tend to overlook people's struggle because I think it's fun. And other people are saying, no, this is brutal. I've had people say, Liz, I need you to stop saying that. Yeah. Like, saying what? Oh, saying how hard can it be? I'm like, oh yeah, I do say that. Yeah. I say it because I think, okay, you know what? We can do this. It can't be that hard. And they're like, yeah. Liz, what we're doing is actually really hard. Yep. And I need you to acknowledge it. I've really changed a lot in this regard. I've learned instead of reminding people that we're going to be successful, I spend more time talking about what we're doing is hard. Mm -hmm. It's uncomfortable. Like we're, we're going to make a bunch of mistakes. We just started this new research project and I kept telling my team, you know what, we're not going to get this right the first time. Mm -hmm. Like our first set of interviews are probably going to be tossaways. We're probably going to screw this up. You know, there was a member of the team who really stepped up to a big role and we were all just congratulating her for just having really just killed it in this new hard role. And she said, well, I was able to do it because Liz, you told me it was okay for me to, to fail yep. at first. Mm -hmm. And so I've really learned to be more, not pessimistic, but to signal the struggle. Yeah, no, I, I just had a um, memory of when I first started at Google, my first manager, who's now my friend, said, um, she was like, oh, Stephanie, just, you know, create a PNL for, you know, this whole org. I was like, Ann, I've never created a PNL before. And she's like, well, look it up and just try your best and know that you're going to get it all wrong. And that's okay. And you're actually probably going to get, you know, the forecast for all your teams wrong for six months. And that's okay. Because you have to talk with the teams, figure out, you know, what they're going to be spending and all their revenue and all that. And she was like, so the first three months are just you learning and you can send out the reports. And if it's wrong, that's fine. Like I'll try, I'll check it for you at the end. I'll try and, you know, help you and all that. But three to six months, expect that you're not really going to know what you're doing and that's okay. And that was the biggest relief to hear someone say like you're just going to be learning and it's okay and you're allowed to fail and then you'll get it and then you know we'll expect it to be better in the future but it's okay for now because then I felt like she understood how hard something was coming in when you didn't know what you were doing she gave me freedom to try and experiment and send things out and know that you know I'm sending it to VPs and SVPs and she wasn't scared of something being incorrect and it just felt like I actually had freedom to try and to learn and actually made me want to do a better job and wanted to prove her wrong. Like, it's not going to take me three months or it's not going to take me six months. Like, it really gave me that motivation to um, try and be the best. Whereas, you know, if I came in and had to take over something from someone else and it was like, this person already crushes it, you need to come in and do the same. I probably would have had, you know, less motivation of like, oh, I just need to meet this person. Like, whatever they're doing, I just need to get there and it'll be good enough. Yeah, I mean, so many leaders fall victim to this um, platitude. We talked earlier about trying to get beyond the platitudes of like, failure is not an option. Yeah, And actually that causes people, it's a very diminishing approach because then it's like, okay, well, if failure is not an option, then I'm just not gonna try. Yeah. But if you say, you know what, failure is inevitable. And it's not to say we're okay with failure, but there's, and it's about carving out, it's, it's about making a space to fail. Meaning, you know what? across our work, there are places where failure isn't an option. Like these are the places we have to get it right. But over here, like these are the freeways. <laughs> like you can't play on the freeway. But over here, these are playgrounds. 
these are places where, you know what, it's okay to fail at first. Like it's going to take you three months and to be able to parse that out is a critical part of leadership. But um, so those are a couple of ways that I tend to have an accidentally diminishing effect. Some of the, the ways that we see this happen a lot for people would be the rescuer oh, yeah. leader. These are big hearted people who want they care about their team. They want people to be successful. And when they see people struggling, it, it like it breaks their heart. Yeah. And they haven't learned how to be comfortable watching other people be uncomfortable. And so they come in and they help. And and sometimes it's a heroic rescue that looks a lot like, um, look at me. Yeah. I'm here to save the day. Yep. And they tell everyone about it. Yeah. <laughs> if I wasn't here, what would have happened? <laughs> right, which is the core of the diminishing mindset, which is this belief that nobody's going to figure it out without me. Yeah. And so sometimes they do create this rescue that looks like they're very much needed, but more often than not, it's just extending a hand of help. But, you know, what happens when a leader is helpful too early or too often? People... um become dependent on those leaders. And, you know, we think that what we're doing by helping is messaging to people, I care about you. Mm -hmm. I want you to be successful. But think about this. If you come in and help me with something I'm struggling with, that was clearly mine to own and be responsible for. What in essence are you saying to me? Basically saying you don't have the ability to do this on your own. Yeah. I don't think you can do this. And so rescuing is one way that we end up with the very best of intentions diminishing others or the the pace setting leader who's leading by example. Let's say there's kind of a new effort to like maybe know our customers better, Mm -hmm. customer intimacy. And so the leader gets out ahead of his team and he's like, okay, I'm going to go visit more customers than anyone else. I'm going to set the pace Mm -hmm. for customer visits, thinking that people will notice what he's doing and and will follow. But what happens more often than not is people do notice and they're like, wow, look at Rick. He loves the customers. And like they see that that's his job. And when we lead by setting the, and and people tend to um, hold back. They tend to slow down when the leader is the one speeding up. Mm -hmm. You know, when we lead by setting the pace, we are more likely to create spectators than followers. Like Mm -hmm. people are watching us do our thing. And they're like, that person's more qualified than me. Why would I try and step in and do exactly what they're doing when they do it? Maybe 10x better. Yeah. And when you do something so much better than your people, you can very easily kind of fall into the he's amazing um, category where your people are like, oh, look at Rick. He's amazing. He's so good with customers. Yeah. And what do you really want as a leader? Do you want people walking out of your office going, wow, my boss is amazing? Or do you want people walking out of your boss thinking, they're amazing. Definitely the latter. You want the latter. Yeah. Like you may want people to say like, wow, so-and-so is an amazing boss. Yeah. And they help me be the most amazing that I can be. So when I did this research, wrote the book Multipliers, sent it to my publisher, one of the um, things that my publisher said was, other than, boy, this book could have only come out of Silicon Valley. She said, wow, Liz, these are not cupcakes and kisses kinds of leaders. Yeah. And she, she noticed that these leaders tend to have a hard edge, that They value people, but they're okay letting other people struggle. They have very high expectations. They're demanding. They're not just soft. They're not just trusting, empowering, nurturing kind of leaders. That's that's what they do to create an environment of trust. Mm -hmm. Or um, as Amy Edmondson at at Harvard Business School calls it, this like um, psychological safety. 
But that's just to be in the game. Yeah. Then they they challenge people. They ask people to do hard things. Yeah. Um, one of the ways that we accidentally diminish is that we just, you know, we're good to people, but we never ask them to do anything hard. Maybe because it feels too hard to delegate something as well. I've seen that kind of happening personally where you're like, well, I don't know if this person can fully do it. So I'll just do it myself. Mm. And then you're actually holding back your team from learning and growing and keeping more work on yourself instead of just going through that little period of feeling uncomfortable, feeling like it's hard, maybe taking the time to train someone that could have exponential you know, effects on the next couple of years. Instead, you decide not to do that. Yeah. Sometimes the do-it-yourselfers are the do-it-yourselfers because, hey, you know what? Back to the platitude, it's just easier to do it yourself. Like That's it's me. the more efficient thing. Yeah. And that ends up diminishing for sure. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the do-it-yourselfer is of the protector variety, which is, you know what? This thing is ugly. This thing is yeah. hard. Like, oh, I'm not going to have, you know, Josh go in and present to her. She's going to like rip his, you know, yeah. his um, kick his knees out. I'll do it. Oh, you know what? This one's fraught with political problems. I'll handle this. And, and so the leader takes the tough stuff. In fact, I... I got some advice early on in my career. My boss, I was a brand new manager and one of my bosses said to me, he goes, your job is to do everything that is new, hard and important. And I'm like, okay, I'll do the things that are new, hard and important. Well, I end up this heroic leader. Yeah. And I come to see like, no, wait a minute. I was, I was taking all of the good learning for myself. Like I was taking all the nutritious work yeah. and leaving the junk food for other people. Um, but these leaders who try to protect their teams by doing the hard stuff themselves, you know, they become like um, like a banyan tree. Mm -hmm. You know, we all know like the huge banyan yeah. trees, like they provide a lot of shade and comfort to people, but nothing grows under these. It's such a good visual. <laughs> and, and, you know, you often see this in high growth companies where you've got these uber capable leaders, but not a lot of bench strength mm -hmm. because the leader has been out doing all the hard things. Yeah. Or the organization said, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we need Mary on this team. Like, don't send a substitute. Yeah. We don't want one of your lackeys. Like, show up to the meeting yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I've definitely seen that a lot. I really like, um, I don't like thinking about this, but I wonder, too, how much ego comes into play when it comes to, like, I'll do this. And especially in Silicon Valley, sometimes, especially in the workplace, it can feel like a rat race and, like, you got to, really, you know, show people what you're doing and like make sure everyone knows that you're getting the credit. I mean, even I saw this at Google happen a lot where people were, you know, putting their names on things to make sure everyone knew who created this doc and it ends up going in your perf packets or like when you're trying mm -hmm. to get promoted. And it's very much having to show what you did. But then um, I was at a conference last week and Jennifer Tejada, she's the CEO of PagerDuty. She talked about how a lot of times when new CEOs come in, they feel the need to go, ha, this whole, you know, company would have died without me. Look at everything I did and really have to show their work and how she was so against doing that. And she um, was talking about how she was in the mindset of like promoting the founder because she was coming in and taking over for the founder. And she always wants to put him in the best light and showcase like, this is why we're here because of someone like this. And I love thinking about like, yeah, I've seen a lot of people who, you know, are in that mindset of just like, look what I did. Let me just make sure everyone's aware of it pushing people out of their work and stuff to show how important and valuable they are. But then when she put that perspective of like, that's not what I did and I'm successful because I am not thinking that way. 
I love that. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of thoughts I have on that. One is from the current research I'm doing, I'm doing a new research project where I'm looking at who are the most valuable contributors inside organizations and what is it that they do? And one of the things I'm finding among a number of really interesting things is that they tend not to be showboats and their managers are absolutely seeing the value they create. However, one of the the big concerns I hear about people with this idea of leader as multiplier, like meaning my job as a leader is to see, to use and to grow the capability of my team. Like that's fundamentally my job is to access the intelligence of others, harness it, use it to solve hard problems. Some people go, yeah, that sounds great. And I know that's right, but I'm worried what will people think is my contribution? Yeah. And 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 it's a legitimate worry. And I don't think I would steer someone down the path of being like, now there's a, there's a quote from a Chinese philosopher that I'm forgetting, but it's something to the effect of when a great leader comes in, people accomplish something great and they thought they did it entirely by themselves. Like it's sort of this invisible, I did a, I brutalized that. <laughs> Sounds like a philosopher to me. I don't know which one. It was much smarter <laughs> um, when, when he said it, but people worry about being invisible. And I mm-hmm. wouldn't recommend anyone go down the invisible leader path. Like the idea of being a multiplier is that you use all of the intelligence that's available to you, mm-hmm. including your own. Yeah. See, so when you are so fixated on your own intelligence that the people around you don't get to be smart, not only do people end up under contributing because of that, they resent their leader. But when you work in a way that you use your intelligence that everyone around you gets to be 100% and more like they grow around you, it actually, one, they appreciate you. In fact, the, the word that just kept coming up as I looked at how people felt about their multiplier bosses, some were like, yeah, that guy was like kind of brutal. Like I did things for him. Like he asked me to do things that were so hard, but man, did I love. Yeah. Like they were hard leaders, but people loved working for them. Like they became the bosses everyone wanted to work for. You're like yeah. the go-to boss and this reputation starts to shine. But Here's where I think is is the important idea is when you lead in a way that everyone around you gets to be 100% and be intelligent and contribute at their fullest, it leaves room for you to do the same with yours. Like you don't have to hold back your ideas. Like you get to use all of your own intelligence and the intelligence of others. In fact, your team will want it from you. So they'll put your name on yeah. the dock, so to speak. Yeah, I kind of- If you do it right. Yeah, as long as you do it right. That that makes me think, so when I first came into Google, they had it set up to where, you know, in past companies I've seen, managers don't actually have projects that they work on and own. Like if they have a team, their job is to manage the team. But at Google, uh, you actually have to have your own projects, like in your reviews and stuff like that, that you're working on and leading, along with managing your team who also has all their projects as well. And when I first came in, I was like, man, that just seems like a lot of work. I mean, my manager, Anne, has this big team. We all have our projects. She's helping all of us with our projects. And she's expected to carry her own two to three big projects on her own. Like, why would they set it up this way? But now that you're saying that, to me, that highlights using your own intelligence and empowering your team to use theirs. Because you've got your projects to work on that you're focused on while also empowering your team and helping them as well. It's a hard job, but it makes a little bit more sense to me of why maybe they set things up that way. Unfortunately, 
I think this is the way of the future. Mm -hmm. The more that we go out and look in organizations, the more we see managers, frontline managers, middle managers, executives saying, you know, I have two jobs. I have my management job and then I have my stuff as well. And so I think we're seeing a decline of the the general manager model where the boss's job is to be the boss and just to manage the people on their team. I think this is going away. And I think leaders have to be really good at how do you contribute yourself, but create an environment where everyone else contributes around you. But, you know, part of that is reducing the hierarchy. So it's like everyone has a player coach role. Yeah. And I think it makes it easier to respect someone in that role. I mean, I just remember looking at her projects and being like, oh my gosh, I don't work on that project. I don't even know how she's doing that while managing us. But it really helped me kind of respect and want to be my manager by seeing the hard, sticky projects that she was able to handle while also handling an entire team. Where at previous companies, you know, you'd see the person just managing and it makes you wonder, have they even done my work before? Have they, like, what have they done to just manage an entire team? They don't feel qualified. And you kind of start getting these built up resentments because you're like, your job is just to manage me and you're not even doing that that well. Like, why should I look up to you or want to be in your role or something like that? So yeah, I agree. I, I definitely see that going away. Well, and I think it's about, as a leader, understanding where does your value add come from? Mm-hmm. And if it's, you're doing the same thing that your team is doing, it's going to be difficult. You're going to always be pulled down this diminisher path, but it's more like, what value do I bring? How is that unique? But you know, that's how the best teams operate. They operate in a way that each person's, what I call their native genius, the thing they do easily, freely. It's kind of what our like what your mind is built to do, that on a team, everyone knows like what is the brilliance that that person brings. And it's known, it's talked about. And so we just know how to use each other. Oh, you know what? We need Sunir, like Sunir, like no one's better than him at relationship building. We got to put Sunir on this. And and as a manager, the team would want to use your native genius as much as you would want to use theirs. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So are there any... um companies or people you're working with now where either you use lessons that you've seen from them and applied it in other places or um, something that's kind of uniform that you're working with multiple companies on or multiple teams with and it's kind of very similar things that other people can learn from. Here are the things that I see companies trying to do, particularly with regard to their leadership and their culture. Most companies are trying to figure out how do we harness more ideas and how do we innovate and be disruptive to most companies are figuring out how do we create deeper engagement? How do we take a workforce that has been, you know, systematically disengaged and create higher levels of engagement and ownership across the company? Um, Most companies are trying to figure out how do we get the real value of diversity, not the box ticking value of diversity, but how do we go beyond diversity and get an inclusive environment where everyone's voice is heard and an environment where everyone's minds are engaged. And how do we speed up cycle time? Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we learn faster than the environment around us is changing? How do we like outrun change? And those are a few themes I see across a number of companies. And it's interesting because it's, it crosses tech. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Target is trying to figure it out to the same extent that Tesla's trying to figure that out. Oh, that's awesome. Is there any favorite companies or people that you've worked with where you're like, I really saw, you know, a huge change in this team that went from this to this, or I remember, you know, they, I use them as a case study now for other companies. 
Oh, that's like asking me which of my children. <laughs> all right, are, who's your favorite kid? Favorite, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we all know my my son Christian is my favorite, <laughs> and um, I told him once I'm like I have four kids. And I told Christian he was my favorite, and he's like, "Mom, you're such a bad mom." Like, no, <laughs> like moms aren't supposed to have favorites. I'm like, "Oh, Christian, he's my challenging one, and he's brilliant." I said, "You're my favorite because if you weren't my favorite." you just might be my least favorite. <laughs> you fluctuate. You better be careful. <laughs> so I've made you my favorite. Let me see. Um, or team or leader. I'll give you a couple leaders that I'm enamored with. Uh, yeah. Let me see. Susan St. Ledger at yes. Splunk and the whole Splunk team, uh, I find really interesting. I'm a big fan of Salesforce. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I worked with Mark <laughs> at Oracle yeah. and I knew Mark as a leader at Oracle and I have watched him Lead. So we, Mark and I grew up together, so mm -hmm. to speak, and early days at Oracle. I have to admit, the Mark I see leading that company today is so different than Mark. Like, I hope I have grown yeah. as, a, as a leader as much as Mark has grown. I am just continually impressed with this company. And um, we are doing in this new research. Well, actually, I'll tell you where we're doing our research because these are some yeah. of my favorite companies. Um, Salesforce, SAP, Splunk. Google, Adobe, Target, NASA, and Stanford Health. That's a the good Stanford lineup. <laughs> it's a great lineup. And, you know, I was reviewing my notes from um, our interviews. We did 20 interviews at Salesforce. And I'm so amazed at their management maturity and the way they think about leadership. So they're definitely a favorite. And um, I, I really have just admired what Mark has done um, building that company over the years and all the leadership that has built up around him. Um, yeah, that's cool. So what? how has he changed since you maybe knew him? And what do you see um, with him today where you're like, I really admire X, Y, or Z, or these surveys showed me this? Discipline. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people admire Mark for his um his activism, his community involvement, you know, having this big vision. He obviously pioneered this like, SaaS and cloud. I don't know if he pioneered it, but he put a pretty yeah. good brand um, container around it. But, you know, his discipline and, you know, Salesforce really runs around this V2 mom concept of like, what are your visions, your values, your methods, your operating model and your measures. I, mm -hmm. If you are listening and you're from Salesforce, I'm sorry <laughs> if I got that a little bit wrong, but they really run the company based on a cascading set of priorities. And they do that in an agile, rapidly changing cycle. And, you know, the, the market Oracle was much more of a shoot from the hip, yeah. you know, um, dynamic, but easily distracted. And I'm just amazed at the discipline. That's awesome. With which they've run that organization and built that. That's really cool. So with your research and everything you're working on, what's next? Uh, I know you've written a couple of books. Maybe if you want to talk about what you've written and where you're headed over the next couple of years. Hmm. So I, I'm always in search of something. I don't know what I'm doing. So once I get good at something, I'm always you know, anxious to go try something new. I have spent the last 10 years really looking at what does great leadership look like. And I'm now turning my attention to what does great uh, contributorship look like? What do the best contributors do? So I know what some of the best coaches and managers do, but I want to know what are some of the best players and team captains do? Like what makes them so valuable? 
And so I'm out there trying to study what are the practices of of the most valuable players inside organizations and how do you really make yourself valuable? And how do you make, like, how do you increase your value? How do you increase your impact? And I'll tell you one of the things I'm finding um, that has been so delightful because it kind of brings my career a little bit full circle on this. Um, So let me me go back to a little bit of advice I got early on in my career. I kind of came out of college wanting to teach management, teach leadership. And I don't know where this came from, but that's what I wanted to do. And I tried to get that job doing it. And then I joined Oracle and had some jobs in education. And then one of the first opportunities, I'm making kind of a job change. There's been a reorganization I'm interviewing for a new job in a new group. And I go out, I go to meet with the vice president and I'm laying out, here's what I think I can do. And I make a case for Oracle's rapidly growing. They're putting young people into big management jobs. We really haven't trained them. People don't know what they're doing. I want to build a management curriculum for this company. And my boss listened to me and, or this would be my boss's boss. He listened to me and he's like, Liz, we think you're great. Like you're a superstar. You're great. And we love that you want to do this. But you know, right now your your boss, she has a different problem. And here's the problem is that we're going to hire about 2,000, you know, new college graduates who are coming from the top technical schools in the nation. And we need to get them up to speed on Oracle technology. So these were people coming in from like MIT and Caltech and Stanford with technical degrees, EEs, computer science degrees, um, you know, degrees in AI, even back that early. And he said, we need to get them up to speed on Oracle technology. That's the problem that we have. And he said, so why don't you, like, we love that you want to go do this, but why don't you go help your boss solve that problem? Now, what he was, what he was essentially saying to me was, you know what, Liz, like, I get that you're passionate about that, but why don't you actually make yourself useful? Because that thing that you're passionate about, we don't need that right now. We don't have a high use for it. What we need is someone to teach technology to these new technologists. Now, I came out of business school and unfortunately I put probably on my resume somewhere that I had taken a Fortran programming class <laughs> and that I had worked in the computer lab as like a, an assistant, but really what I was helping people do was like put floppy drives into their yeah. computers, but like somehow <laughs> blowing I probably, out the dust. <laughs> I, yeah, I was blowing out the dust. Yeah. Like on the, you know, the, shaking out the dust on the keyboards <laughs> or something. But he said, you know what? We actually need you to teach programming. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And, and I didn't, I wasn't so worried that I didn't know how to do it as much as I was like, well, that's not what I want to do. Yeah. But fortunately this, this little bit of subtle guidance he gave me, he didn't crack me over the head with it. It was just, why don't you help your boss solve that problem? I'm like, oh, I know what's needed. What's needed is technology training. And so I'll figure out how to do that. So I completely let go of what I wanted to do. And I said, I'll do that. And I remember the nights like staying up literally till five in the morning, trying to figure out these programming techniques so that I could teach them the next day. I actually consider this the, in some ways, this is the biggest accomplishment in my career that no one would know about, but me, I'm now showing it, is I taught these courses for, I don't know, like a year or so to some of the smartest technology, like we were hiring the top grads out of the top programs in the nation. 
And they did not know that I did not know what I was doing. Wild. In fact, I still see them around the industry and they're like, Liz, you taught me PL SQL. <laughs> she was such a good engineer, man. <laughs> and, you know, I think maybe I barely knew more than they did, but I, I brought candy to class every day. That was kind of my strategy is just give candy for good answers. But I learned a lot from that, which is, you know what? Yeah, we want people who are passionate, but really the most valuable contributors put their own interests aside and say, I'll go do, I'm going to make myself useful. That's such a good reminder for, I think, new grads, especially now, because what we've seen when we've been hiring and things like that is that you have these new grads or a lot of people who, you know, we hire a lot of people who skip college and, but they come in or they're coming to these interviews with a passion to do X, Y, or Z. And we're like, well, that's great. However, you know, our business actually needs this. And, you know, it's great if you want to you want a podcast on dogs, but we probably can't get a sponsor for a podcast on dogs right now. Like we actually have a podcast on IT instead. So <laughs> bring your dog to work. Yeah, like you can bring your dog. We love dogs. We have Toasty, our dog. He's here all the time, but it's such a good reminder that like you can't just come in and have this mindset, which I feel like a lot of people have now. Like I wanna do this and I deserve to do this, even though I might not have experience. So I'll figure out how to do whatever I want at a company. Like you actually need to, you know, the company has needs and business goals and revenue metrics they have to hit. And you either can be a part of that and see the common goal and then, you know, move throughout your career to maybe get closer to what you want over time or do your own thing. But you can't just come right in automatically. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and Stephanie, I, you make us such an important point is that like over time you get to do what you want to do. What I have noticed is that people who come in who go, okay, I get it. Nobody cares about what I care about. I'm going to care instead about what's important to my boss and to the business. People who subordinate their passion and become then instead passionate about the business do not get stuck for life Yeah, doing that. They don't end up with a subordinate career or a subordinate position. They get noticed and people say, wow, thank you. And I know I experienced it myself that the more I pointed myself toward what was important to the business and became passionate about it and did it like as if it were my podcast on dogs, yeah. that people started giving me bigger and bigger responsibility and I had a bigger and bigger voice. Yeah. And then I got to start to set direction and very quickly I'm able to do the work that I want to do. Like yeah. I think the fastest path to doing work you love is to go in, find out what's important, make yourself useful, love it, yep. learn to love it. And um, it just opens up opportunity after opportunity. Yeah, no, I, I love that mindset. I think that's helpful for anyone starting out or going into a new job or anything. How do you make yourself useful? Because I think a lot of people are missing that right now in this day and age. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, is your, so your next book, it sounds like it's going to be on the contributor now. Do you have a name or a launch date that we can all look forward to or just TBD? No, no name, <laughs> no launch date. I'm just I'm just finishing research mode. I should start writing. So I'm still exploring, but there's some very, very clear patterns. And that is one of them. And what are the two books that you, is it two books or have you written more books that people can check out in the meantime when they're just waiting on the sidelines for the new one? There's multipliers, how the best leaders make everyone smarter. And we, we've talked about that. There's a book called Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the new game of work. And that's really all about, you know, it's not what you know that matters, it's how fast you can learn is what it's about. And then I have um, a lesser known book called The Multiplier Effect, 
which was written for educational leaders. And it's taking this multiplier dynamic and looking at it in education. And I did it, one, because I think education and getting our educational leadership right is important, but also it was a wonderful mother-daughter project because I wrote it with my mom. That's awesome. What was that like writing a book with your mom? It was great for me. It was terrible for her. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Well, because I ended up a hugely accidental diminisher. Because I, my mom is a, um, a retired former teacher and administrator. She's been a principal of a number of schools. And I think my mom is amazing. And so I pulled her out of retirement and I'm like, mom, do you want to write with this book with me? She goes, oh, I'd love to help. I'm like, oh, it's not help. I really like, do you want to really write it with me? Let me describe how hard this is. Yeah. I took her to lunch. I said, it's a business lunch, mom, you know. Uh, strictly serious. Strictly, yeah. <laughs> strictly business. No chit chat. Let me describe how hard this is. It's going to be super hard. It's going to be hard. Okay. Take however hard you think it is. Multiply that times two. Now multiply that times two again. Now you're just getting like, it's going to be super hard. I underestimated how hard it was going to be for her because I started just giving her big things like, hey, go do this, analyze that, do this, write this. And and she started to kind of crumble. And I realized I had I had sized the wave wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I had given... I'm prone to overstretching people rather than understretching it. And I saw that by giving her too much, too much space, too much ambiguity, I should have started small and gone bigger, that I ended up kind of knocking out her confidence. Now, she yeah. ended up doing a great job, but it was a little bit messy yeah. along the way. Sounds like a good I, learning I learned, experience. <laughs> I learned a tough leadership lesson yeah. because the last person on the planet I would want to diminish would be my own mother, who I think is brilliant. Yeah, well, that's a good lesson. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of people do that where they see certain things in someone and they have expectations of them that are maybe higher than they should actually be. And they come in and push them and push them and push them when maybe that person's like, well, I thought I, you know, I only really wanted to do this or I signed up for this. And I've seen that happen a lot. So that's a good lesson. So a quick, we usually do a little lightning round where we kind of go quick answers to just fun questions. Are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite book? It can be fiction, nonfiction, uh, one that you really remember. A Winter's Tale. It's a novel. Okay. Uh, favorite thing to do on the weekend to relax and recharge? Easy hiking every Ooh. weekend. Where do you go hiking? I love hiking. We've got the best hills. So um, Wonderlich, yeah. um, all through Portola Valley. Okay. That's great. Favorite vacation spot? Well, my favorite place to go is India. Okay. I don't know that I would call it a vacation. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite place to travel, favorite vacation spot. Our family goes to a different country every year. Wow. So we don't, I, I don't allow us to go back to the same place. So I what's like, on your list then? Where are you all headed? Um, We, probably the Philippines is what we're thinking. Oh, that's cool. Croatia was where we went last, but, and for most of our kids' young years, we were going into the developing world. Mm-hmm. Like, to go see how life is very different. How do you think, I'm changing the lightning round and asking questions, but how do you uh, think that changed your kids' mindsets by bringing them to places like this? And would you take them out of school or was this always a summer thing? Always in the summer. It would be easy to say, wow, it changed their point of view, like, like, oh, we have so much. And maybe a point of view that what we have um, is not normal. But I would hope it would have a very different effect in that what people would see is they would see that there are so many different ways to be happy. 
and that happiness doesn't require material anything and that they would see joyful, kind, happy people living in some very, very different circumstances. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And not that I'm, that's to say like poverty is the way to go. Yeah. No, I think that's good to have that mindset though of you can be happy without. Happiness is a choice. It's not circumstantial. Yeah. That's great. If someone were to narrate your life, who would you choose? Hmm. Tina Fey. Oh, that's a good one. I haven't had anyone say that yet. Uh, Favorite movie or Netflix show or whatever you do to kind of just not think? (laughs) Well, movie, Life is Beautiful and um, Shawshank Redemption remains uh, like a favorite. Yeah, I've been a little bit addicted to The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that one too. And is there one person that you uh, look to for either inspirational quotes, um, leadership lessons that you kind of keep close tabs on in your industry or in maybe a completely, you know, non-relevant industry that's nothing that you've really looked into that you're like, oh, this person helps me think through my job or my business? Well, there's a person I've spent a a lot of time thinking about recently and over the years is Bill Campbell, who I was, you know, he passed maybe three or four years ago. And the, the new book, Trillion Dollar Coach, is a fantastic book written about him and his leadership. I was one of the lucky ones who got mentored by him. And it started when I wanted to write about him in Multipliers. And I think Multipliers might be the only book that he's allowed himself to be featured in. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And it started with him being very helpful to me, but saying, absolutely, no, you can't write about me. I'm a behind the scenes kind of guy. And after a number of conversations, he allowed me to do it and trusted me with his story. And, uh, you know, it really changed how I think about leadership, being able to get some of that mentoring. Yep. I will have to read that book. That was on my list. And they were doing uh, a meeting meetup or something around here with the other authors of mm-hmm. that book. And I missed it because I think we were, I don't know, away or something. I'm so sad I missed it. <laughs> the book is fantastic. And you can, Jonathan and Eric, if you can get them to come talk. I mean, we anyone who's been touched by Bill Campbell and maybe for those who don't know who I'm talking about, this is the former Columbia football coach, became a Silicon Valley executive. I was a CEO of Intuit and then became behind the scenes coach to some of Silicon Valley's biggest leaders and titans. And, um, you know, anyone who has ever worked for Bill or been mentored by Bill is has been imprinted and it stays with you for a long time. And, and there's a lot of us who are committed to honoring his legacy. That's awesome. Yeah, very good to hear. Is there any final tips or advice or things you wanted to say to wrap up? the show today? I think the best leaders and the best contributors probably are confident. They understand their own intelligence, their own capability, what they bring, they bring it fully, but perhaps they're confident enough that they're able to get over themselves because the best leaders have gotten over themselves to the point where they understand their own genius, but they can really see the genius of others. And the best contributors bring everything they have, but they get over themselves and they're willing to work on what's important to the team and the mission. And if you really can't work on what's important to the organization, why are you working there? I love that. So where can people find out more about you? Are you on the socials? Uh, Should they go to your website? How how can they find you? I'm on the socials other than Instagram. Like I can only do so much. I can sort of draw the line there. And you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. there's the, the wisemangroup.com 
is a website you can find everything about the books, about us. For anyone who didn't hear our conversation earlier, we're hoping to bring Liz back in the future whenever she has time for maybe a round table or something fun. And Liz, it's been such a pleasure having you here. I hope to see you back. Thank you. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.